1: Tough assignments and hard work build character and they build resiliency and don't shy away from them because you learn more from tough assignments than you ever learn from an easy one. There's a difference between a dream chaser and a dream catcher.
0: Thanks all for tuning in to Dream Catchers where we make things happen. Dream Catchers was formally launched to unlock the hidden potential in successful, self-motivated individuals who desire to take their life's work to the next level but need support to evolve. We are a collective group of professionals with various backgrounds that use our talents to assist those individuals in realizing their wildest dreams by providing education, inspiration, and direction. This podcast is where we share the lessons we've learned along the way to catching our dreams and give you some context around the how and the why to each approach to put you further ahead on the journey to catching your dreams. Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Dreamcatchers podcast. I'm your host, Jerome, and I've got the grand fortune of having Willie Deese with me today. Mr. Deese, how
1: are things in Chapel Hill? Jerome, thanks for asking. Things are good. It's raining a little bit outside, but it is winter. So it's part of the course. Beautiful.
0: And so for those of the listeners who don't have the good fortune of knowing about you and your story, tell me a little bit of a favor and give us the background. Like, How do you become the guy that gives $10
1: million to a university? Well, it wasn't a plan. Uh, At least to start, it was not a plan. A little bit about me is that I grew up outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, one of nine children, grew up on the farm, doing all the things that you do on a farm from uh, raising vegetables and Livestock to raising cotton to putting rings in the noses of pigs, you name it, uh, I've probably done it. Also, my dad had a landscaping business, so I probably had cut more lawns by the time I was 18 years old to last most people a lifetime. Also, worked in cannon meals during the summer after I was a teenager and uh, during uh, breaks from college uh, there as well. So from the time that I was six years old up until this very day, I've been working. It's been different kinds of work over that 59-year period. But what I would say about those early years of working, it gave me great insight into what I wanted to do and what I didn't want to do. And most of the things I grew up doing, I knew I did not want to do most of my adult life or any of my adult life.
0: Yeah. So I went to school with a guy by the name of Howard Conyers, Dr. Howard Conyers. He's a rocket scientist at NASA and he grew up on a farm and he talked about never wanting to go back to the farm just like the work is just so hard it's so intense and it was kind of like his parents were working him really hard so that he would go get education so he could work with his brain instead of working with his back and it sounds like this was kind of similar in your experience and so you left davidson county that's that's, that's cabarrus cabarrus county but davidson city right
1: okay
0: and then you come to greensboro yeah go to North Carolina a go through the business school, and then
1: you've got this really cool story about your internship. So let's talk a little bit about that. I was walking past the department chair's office one day, and he told me uh, digital equipment, computer company is on campus today, and they're interviewing. And they were actually interviewing for co-op students. And co-op is very similar to an internship The difference, though, it's a longer period of time. So you go and you work for either a semester or a summer, but you sign up for doing two um, sessions. So it it would translate into what would normally take four years to graduate. Now you were guaranteed that it was going to take five. And so my response was, I'm not a co-op student. I don't know who digital equipment is, what they do, and I don't know where they are. And he answered all of those. He said, I didn't ask you if you were a co-op student. I told you to go take the interview. They're in Massachusetts, and uh, they do computers. And I expect you to be there tomorrow to take the interview. I understood what a directive was versus uh, a suggestion. And so I showed up the next day for the interview, and uh, they were interviewing at uh, all of the HBCUs, uh, at least the state-supported HBCUs in North Carolina. And uh, I was one of the uh, people they selected to go and and do the co-op. And I credit that experience. So I ended up doing my second semester of my junior year in Springfield, Massachusetts at the digital facility, manufacturing facility that made at the time computer modules, integrated circuit boards, as well as disc and tape storage products. I subsequently stayed there the summer, so I was literally there, uh, and that gave, that in turn gave me my, what was the equivalent of my two semesters. So I did a, a summer and the second semester of my junior year. And when I came back to a and In the fall of 1976, I was somewhere between being a junior and a senior because I now had to uh, catch up. It meant that I now needed to take 19 and 21 hours for my first and second semester to be fully classified as a senior. And it meant that I had six hours of summer school as well. So digital had made me a standing offer, and I was eager uh, to get back to Massachusetts and join digital. And so I took 19 hours that first semester, 21 hours the second, and six hours in the first session of uh, summer school. And I had the highest grade point average that I ever had in my college career. I had a 3.9 while taking an overloaded schedule, but I had an incentive thinking back to those days of cutting grass, working in the cotton mill, doing all of those farm duties, and uh, working in a uh, high-tech manufacturing plant felt like a real good alternative to me. And so I uh, got turned on really by that experience, and I made up in my mind uh, while I was there as a co-op student that I wanted to run a plant uh, at Digital Equipment, and that I wanted it to be that plant ideally. And fast forward uh, 14 years at the age of 34, I was running that plant.
0: No way. So you saw it and then you made it happen. And I mean, it wasn't without help. I think the thing that made this story most interesting to me was when you had the College of Business named after you last year, there was like 10 people who came from digital to participate in that event. And I don't think they were just happened to be in North Carolina on that day. I think they traveled a good little ways in order to, to be a part of that endeavor, along with Ken uh, Chennault and a few other folks. So what was it about your experience there that allowed you to rise so quickly? Because you were probably one of
1: the youngest plant managers in company history on that. I was probably the second youngest plant manager that Digital ever had. I think there was one other person who was a plant manager at age 30, and uh, I got there at age 34. The thing that made Digital Springfield unique was that there were incredibly talented people there, many of whom who looked like me. But they were all vested in helping those who came behind them succeed. Not unlike the experience that i had at north carolina A&T were under dean quayster craig and dr danny pogue and uh, a number of others they were vested in us being successful so it was like i graduated from AT, where i had a very supportive high touch coaching environment tough coaching it was, it was it was tough love because they had standards that were very high, but at the same time, the support matched the tough love that you got in terms of high expectations, etc. And the same was true at Digital Equipment. And the common thread uh, was the number of people who looked like me. And uh, they were truly invested in my success And the only thing they told me, they told me two things. They said, if I'm going to be your coach and mentor, you can never make me look bad. And I don't want to work harder than you. And those two things stuck with me. So when I coach and mentor folks today who are almost always younger than me, uh, I say that to them because I came to really believe it. And it made sense to me. If someone is going to invest their time, their talent, and their knowledge and expertise in you, they shouldn't have to work harder than you, and you should never do anything to embarrass them. Well, those are key takeaways, guys. I hope you guys are paying attention
0: there. So you have people kind of pull you along, put you in positions to be successful, and then you worked your tail off to make sure that you made good on whatever they promised that you would be able to do for them.
1: Uh, and, uh, and They did, but let me comment on that, Jerome, because what was interesting about that is that they constantly put me in some of the toughest, for lack of a better term, dirtiest assignments they could possibly put me in. And it was like, do I always have to get this one? (laughs) And their logic was that if you can handle this, you'll be ready for any adversity that comes your way when you don't have this supportive environment around you. Didn't make a lot of sense to me then. But as I progressed through the rest of my career, it made a lot of sense. And I, st- I, I came to believe in that as well, that in the moment, those tough, hard, dirty assignments don't necessarily translate into happy times, but they do build uh, agility, resilience and a toughness that allows you to deal with adversity and come out the other side in a positive place.
0: Wow. And so you, you were put in the lines then and you had to walk out, huh?
1: <laughs> multiple times, <laughs> multiple times. And and then as I grew, it almost became a, a badge of honor because you almost started to feel like, yeah, give me that tough assignment. I want to go tackle that one. At the same time, it could be humbling because you then started to realize that even if you are building your skill set and building your ability to handle a lot of tough things, you can't do it all on your own. And you need to build teamwork, camaraderie, and a system that really does help everyone succeed. And when you do that, then not only do you raise the level of everyone that you're working with, And that then started to become my hallmark. How do I help as many people as I can that I work with be the best that they can be? And in turn, not that I set it up with the notion of personally benefiting, but one of the rewards is that I did personally benefit, not just with my own progression, but with the fulfillment you get from helping others, others succeed.
0: That's major. So it wasn't just about you, it was about others. And that's been modeled for you along the path the whole way. I mean, from being on the farm and seeing the success of the family to going to university and seeing them create opportunities for others. Now you're in Massachusetts. And so you reach the highest rank at the plant. Most people would just mail it in and just coast on to retirement for the next you know, 10, 15 years. but
1: Not you. So, what happened after you left there? Well, I joined uh, Smith Klein Beecham in the Philadelphia area. I actually worked in downtown Philadelphia, lived outside the city. And I was recruited there because of my knowledge of procurement and my plant management background. And they needed, uh, they were recruiting at the time a bunch of 30 somethings. I was 35, 36 years old when they recruited me but they were recruiting us to come in and really revolutionize the way procurement was being done in the pharmaceutical industry to bring high tech industry approaches, automotive approaches to procurement in the pharmaceutical industry. And what I started to learn there was that I was 35, 36 years old, and 36 to be exact, and that whatever you set out as a goal If you accomplish that goal, then it's time to set new goals. The other thing that started to be revealed to me was as I looked around and I started to evaluate my peers, I said, you've got one of two choices. Either you continue to do what you've done most of your career, which is to compete and help the company win at a high level, or be accepting of where you are. And it means you'll end up working for one of your peers. And I didn't have a problem with that. If I really believed my peers actually had more ability or talent or capability than I. But when I made that assessment and I thought I was being objective when I made it, I just didn't see that. And so it didn't make sense at 36 years old to say to myself, you've arrived and settle for being there, and looking forward to working for people who, quite frankly, had less vision and less ability and uh, experience than I. So then I started to set my my uh, sights on. There's no reason why in five, certainly uh, seven years, you can't run global procurement for Smith, Klein, Beecham, and. That's what I started to believe that not only was it possible, but that my chances were were as good, if not better than anyone else's. So were
0: you seeing people in those positions that look like you, or was this different from being at the plant in Massachusetts?
1: I was not because the pharmaceutical industry didn't have necessarily what I call great representation of people of color. It was okay, but it wasn't great. But again, I went back to the experience and the knowledge that I'd gained at Digital Equipment that I knew would be applicable in the pharmaceutical setting if I could learn the pharmaceutical business, which I dedicated myself to learning. And I just knew that there was no reason why it shouldn't be possible if we were graded on merit. But the audacity of it all,
0: like, I mean... This was still fairly early on in the career. Like why outside of I had the vision and I had the capacity or the capability, why you if nobody looked like you? What, what about your upbringing or training made you feel like it was possible?
1: Well, I would say uh, the way I grew up, uh, my parents always pushed us to be the best that we could be. Uh, my dad had a sixth grade education. My mom had an 11th grade ed- education they wanted us to succeed. So again, I had the benefit of people pouring everything they had into us and into me. And so I felt like it was my obligation to do the best that I could by their investment. So that was one set of incentives, if you will, that I had. The other was, I, I guess you could say I was just born with this belief that I never thought I was better than anyone else, but I never thought anyone else was inherently better than me. I guess you could say, I would just always say to myself, why not? And I always just believed if if the playing field is relatively fair, my chances are as good as anybody else's. And, and And the thing that my dad taught me and my mom, but my dad in particular, was that no one should ever outwork you. And I knew my work ethic was better than most of the folk I was competing against. Now,
0: a lot of times when people talk about work ethic, they talk about long hours and so on. And you're married. I'm not sure if your son was around at the time or not, but he was close if he wasn't. So how do you balance that work ethic and going really hard against a career with
1: family balance? It's, it's a great question. And here's here was my answer. I have the benefit now of looking back uh, at being 35 and 40, and if I could do it over, I'd probably do it slightly differently. But if you, one of your ambitions is to get to a senior or executive um, level in, in corporate, you're gonna work long hours, there's no way around it. But what you have to do, in my be- uh, view, is carve out time and then be committed to that time when you carve it out. But I don't think there's any such thing as balance as much as I believe in carving out the time and then being true to that carve-out. Because the reality is, if you're going to be executive vice president of uh, manufacturing for Merck, you're going to work 16 hours a day. That's just kind of what it demands. But... If I had to be at my son's event at his school or if I had to get back from Europe Friday night for uh, something that he was doing in the theater and arts, then I made sure I landed at four o'clock that afternoon. And so I I was there. So I'm not going to say that I necessarily had balance, but I did learn to do those carve outs and I learned to honor those. And the one thing that I would say, looking back, that I would have done differently is that I would have done more of those. I appreciate the transparency there
0: because I tell people all the time there's no such thing as balance. And there's no progress if you're in balance. And so that's phenomenal there. But what you did say is I prioritize, And so when I needed to be present and available, I was. And when it wasn't as pressing and I could make something else a priority, then I did that. And I think everybody has this utopian idea that they can be everywhere for everything. And it just isn't real because there's competing priorities for the time.
1: So it's not realistic. I mean, and the reason why it's not realistic is nothing in life is perfect and nothing goes by a, a script. Certain things happen the way you want and all the preparation pays off and then there are times that the best laid plans of mice and men doesn't go the way you planned it. And that is life. And then you make adjustments. So uh, I don't think there's any such thing as a balance. But I do believe you can prioritize. I do believe you can carve out certain things. And then you have to hold yourself accountable to being present in those moments. Beautiful.
0: So be where your feet are. That, that's one of my favorite things. It's just being present in the space. So you mentioned that big title, executive vice president of manufacturing for Merck. That is where you ended up, which is like the number two position at this multi-billion-dollar pharmaceutical company. No, no,
1: it wasn't number two. It was probably number five or six. Because the ones that would have been in front of me, if you will, of course, the CEO, uh, the head of marketing and sales, the head of R&D, the general counsel, and then probably me. So out of, out of 100,000 people, six or seven isn't bad. Not bad at all, but it's interesting that you
0: put it in that frame. And when you lay those things out, if the manufacturing doesn't work, none of that other stuff matters. R and D doesn't matter
1: legal. Like none of it matters if you guys can't put it on the shelf. So, but it's okay. Well, well, I just tried to make sure that that people understood where you, where I fell in the ranking. Uh, but I do agree with you. Manufacturing is very important. And to illustrate what you just said, anytime we were bringing a new product to market and we'd be trying to sit there and say, what's uh, uh, what's what are the sales going to be? And um you'd have all differing opinions in the room. And it almost always came down to how are we going to market it? What is it? How are the uh, physicians going to write the prescriptions? How are the, the, the patients going to respond? And the CEO, who I reported to at the time, uh, when I initially took the job, who also held the manufacturing job, would look at me he could he would say, I can tell you how much we're going to sell. Uh, we're going to sell as much as Willie's going to make.
0: That is a little bit of pressure and a ton of
1: confidence.
0: <laughs> Most of the time, that's kind of where it turned out. So the only limiting factor was being able to get it made
1: and put on the shelf. Well, it's it, it's a limiting factor. It is once you get beyond, can you make it and can you distribute it? Then it's how good a job does the sales team do? How good a job did the marketing team do prior to the product being available? But to the point that you made earlier, if you can't make and distribute it, you can't sell it. Without question. What's up, Tribe? It's
0: your host, Jerome. I just want to let you know that we put together a free 15-point checklist for exiting the matrix. Jump on over to dreamshouldbereal.com in order to pick your free copy up. Let's get back to the show. So, you know, and the thing that I admire most, and I've never told you about this, is that you are an operator. A lot of people can sell stuff. So, there's other people who can talk about the legal piece, but actually operating the business is what I consider to be the holy grail uh, because there's so much stuff that can go wrong and there's so many things outside of your control. But at the end of the day, the buck stops with you when you're the operator. And so, this is super exciting. And so, I think there was a pretty aggressive growth period while you were sitting in that chair. So tell me a little bit about that ride. Like, did you come into Merck into that seat or did you have another role and get promoted? Like, tell me a little bit
1: about the journey at Merck. Well, during my time at Merck, we had a number of things uh, that occurred. And when I was hired into Merck, I was hired in as the head of procurement globally, reporting into the head of manufacturing. After about 16 months, our head of manufacturing became the CEO, and I was promoted into the head of manufacturing, backfilling him. During that period of time, we had a number of new products that we introduced. We also had a major merger with Sharing Plow, uh, and at one point in time, I had 98 facilities around the world, manufacturing sites, that reported to me with about 30,000 people. And we had to, over that period of time, significantly grow our output while we consolidated that number of sites down to about 42. So we went from 98 sites around the world to 42. Thirty thousand people to around seventeen thousand, and when we were at seventeen thousand, roughly, a little actually a little less than seventeen, we were producing fifty percent more product than when we were at ninety-eight sites, and thirty thousand people. Sounds like efficiency at its finest, right? We we had to become a lot more efficient, and we had to do all of that uh, while we were integrating two cultures two companies that didn't know each other so going back to the comment that I heard you make a moment ago around imagine when you had, when i had 98 plants many of them working three shifts 7 days a week almost all of them working at least two shifts 5 days a week if not three shifts 7 days a week there's a lot of things that could go wrong and our job was to minimize those things that could go wrong. And if they did go wrong, to remediate them quickly, to make sure that we stayed within regulatory compliance because there was the equivalent of the FDA in every country that we operated. We operated in over 30 countries uh, in terms of manufacturing, the 98 sites. We had to consolidate down to 42. Over a course of five years, we did all of that. And so I like to joke with people that when I started in the role I was six five and handsome and I had a full head of hair and then you know at the end I was five nine and almost bald <laughs> the grind of it all so somewhere
0: along the way, you had to ask yourself like is it worth it like is all of this headache and frustration and challenge worth it I, I call this the red pill moment. When did you realize you had to keep going? Because you opened a lot of doors for a lot of people from those positions that you sat in.
1: Well, I was always driven by a sense of accomplishment from the time I was <laughs> probably six years old. I, I was driven by knowing that something was in front of me. It needed to be done. Hopefully I did it to the best of my ability and it made a difference. It had an impact. And the, the, the good thing about the role that I had at Merck for almost 12 years was good or bad. You got a report card every day because you knew whether or not you made product or you didn't. It met regulatory compliance or it didn't. It shipped to where it was supposed to go or it didn't. And we kept score, so you knew (laughs) every single day whether or not it was a good or bad day. And you also knew you needed to have a lot more good days than bad. But the other thing, Jerome, is that you knew that if you did this well, you helped a lot of people stay well, get better, and sometimes it was the difference in whether or not someone lived or died.
0: That's heavy. Life or death is heavy. And you and I have talked quite a bit about coronavirus over the past nine months or so. And being in pharmaceutical, you have an understanding of what's happening in the manufacturing and some of the other stuff that we're trying to do to fix the situation that we have in the U.S. right now. But, you know, I want to leave the actual operating and the pharmaceutical business and talk about how you help increase diversity at Merck. In particular, because as you said, when you came in, you know, pharmaceuticals wasn't diverse at all.
1: So it's it's not quite fair to say it wasn't diverse at all. I think it's very fair to say it needed to improve. Okay. And so
0: moving over to Merck, larger company, I think you said about 100000 employees. You sit in a chair where a lot of those folks are reporting into your organization eventually What were your thoughts about diversity and how did you use the influence and authority that you had in an organization in order to help move that forward?
1: Well, I had uh, experienced what diversity was, diversity and inclusion was of digital equipment. And I knew the power of it and I knew it was not impossible, but I also knew that it required education and understanding in order to make it happen. So I invested in increasing the knowledge, the education and understanding of the folks to understand that diversity and inclusion not only helps underrepresented groups and minorities, it really does lift the boat for everyone because anytime you get diversity of thought, diversity of experience, diversity of background, you end up with solutions that are better than they would be if it were a singular culture kind of solution. But people have to be open to understanding that and they actually have to experience it to believe it. But if your history has been a monoculture, it is difficult for you to imagine a multi So you have to show people, and they have to experience it. They have to come to understand it. And when they do, most people of goodwill make the transition. So one of the things that we started to do was hire, particularly for uh, internships and co-ops and that sort of thing, we started to hire uh, 50% people of color and women into those roles. Now, that was not necessarily embraced when we started, but as people started to see these young people and they started to understand that they, that indeed talent uh, doesn't have uh, boundaries uh, in terms of color and in terms of ethnicity and in terms of gender, then they started to believe there's something to this. And uh, then it started to feel less like an imposition, but more along the lines of, this makes good business sense because it does. Wow, and so really just introducing folks
0: to the conversation and then those folks performing back to the conversation that your mentors had where you better not make me look bad after I create an opportunity for you. And that led to adoption of people getting more comfortable with the diversity versus the expectation for homogeneity. I don't even think that's a word, but people know what I'm trying to say.
1: So homogeneity, I, I get it. And, and, you know, it's human nature to hire and promote in our own image, but that does not always lead to the best outcomes. And when people get their horizons expanded, they start to understand that there's enough room at the table for everyone just need to pull up a few more seats so were you privy to any of the conversations where people were
0: concerned about losing a seat at the table and some of the other i don't know what to call them other than fears that people have about hey there's more people coming to the party there may not be a seat for me
1: anymore well yes and indirectly, I would say yes. I think the way it would normally get played out well, are we talking about quotas? Are we talking about uh, we got to lower the standard? And the answer was always no. By the same token, we didn't have those discussions when you were hiring 98% that looked like you. So. Why do we have that discussion when we say we're going to open this up uh, and make it more rep- representative? and I think you have to have those kinds of challenging discussions because sometimes people are acting out their bi- biases and sometimes they're acting out unconscious biases and when they when it's pointed out and shown to them through what the statistics and the dialogues and the numbers say then people start to see yeah it, we need to do something different and so i'm not going to tell you those conversations were easy they they weren't but they needed to be had and and i never shied away from them
0: well i mean you You've exhibited courage at every point during the career now. Why why start changing when something gets inconvenient or uncomfortable? So, there's also this other dynamic that I've noticed. And I was one, we had one employee who was a African American executive when I was working for a company that had 17,000 employees. And there was always a conversation oh, yeah, we'll, we'll always have one. There's only room for one. And it seems kind of commonplace for, um, people of African descent to think, oh, well, I'm going to be the only one if there's only room at the table for one. But you mentioned this earlier, and I want to bring it back up. You wanted to open the door for other people to get opportunity and exposure. And you did that from the chair that you sat in at Merck. But you're also sitting on boards for pretty large companies today. And I suspect those same conversations are still coming up specifically around the boardroom. And then potentially within the organization itself. So your influence has grown, and I just want to get your perspective on what you're seeing at other places as well.
1: Well, here's what I'd say about that, Jerome, in a post-George Floyd era. I was fortunate in my personal career and in some of the companies that I worked for to work for companies that had a level of commitment to diversity, inclusion, and equity. I was also fortunate, personally, that I did not have as many obstacles put in my way as some of my peers who look like me. Now, that is not to say that I didn't have obstacles put in my way, I did. But they were not as great as some of my peers who had as much talent, if not more talent than I. And so one of the greatest quotes I ever heard, and I'm a, I'm a basketball fan, I think you know that I love sports, I love football, basketball in particular, and Magic Johnson was one of my favorites as an athlete, is that they were asking Magic after having won a championship, and no one's in that circle but you? That's a pretty lonely place to be, and ultimately, it's not that fulfilling The nonsense of it can only be one of us when there is a sea of us just never made any sense to me. And that mentality doesn't make sense. And it clearly is not in the best interest of our community.
0: Well said. Well said. So you haven't just done it in deed or word like you've taken personal net worth and giving it away to a very large uh, level for on a percent basis. Because, I mean, what's her name? Mackenzie Scott. a just got a really large gift, $40 million. And when you do the math, the number that's given is huge. But when you look at it on a percent basis of net worth, it's like, okay, well, I can understand how this happens. Because it isn't giving to the place where it hurts, it's kind of a rounding error. You did approximately twenty-five percent of of that number. You've, you've done ten million so far, and. As an alumnus, you're the largest donor there. You clock tower, you've bought helmets, you've done all kinds of amazing things. And you even made a really large gift to have the College of Business named after you. Early on, we talked about it. You said that wasn't in the plan. But it's such a large sacrifice. It baffles me that that wasn't part of the plan. And just thinking about how things have worked in your career and how deliberate you have been, this act of generosity is the only way
1: that I can describe it. What leads to that? Well, I didn't misspeak when I said it wasn't in the plan earlier. Uh, But I will say the plan had evolved over time. I remember when I was first reached out to almost 20 years ago to be involved in helping the university move forward, and someone suggested to me that you ought to be able to afford to do this, and the first number they threw out to me was something that just felt almost impossible, and looking back, I know that that number wasn't impossible, but it felt that way at the time, but no, I didn't plan initially to do what I did, but having served on the board of trustees uh, and chaired the board of trustees, I served on the board for eight years, chaired it for two you come to understand how the university's finances work, what the needs are. Uh, You already know the challenges that students face in terms of being able to pay tuition and room and board, et cetera. And the more you learn, the more you know about the challenges and the needs, and the more you've been personally blessed you start figuring out ways well, how can I do this? how can I how can this be made possible and and then you start to put plans in place actually to make it happen. But if you ask me what was the motivation, uh, we actually touched on it earlier in this conversation. When I look back over the course of my career and I think about what those professors and those The dean and uh, department chair did when I was at A&T, the investment they made in us. And then I think about the mentors that I had along the way, the coaches that I had along the way that helped prepare me for greater responsibility that then gave me um, greater uh, access to um, opportunity to give back uh, in a... uh, philanthropic way, then it started to make sense to me that I should make a greater sacrifice. And here's how the way I really look at this, uh, Jerome, because I don't think of myself as a philanthropist as much as I think of myself as paying it back and paying it forward, paying it back and paying it forward. The only scholarship I ever got when I was at a and was enough money to go to summer school to finish those six hours that I needed to graduate so that I could go back and take that job that digital equipment had offered me. So that was the only scholarship I ever got. But here's what I got that was worth more than any scholarship money would have been to me. When Dr. Pogue told me, go and take that interview, and he didn't listen to any of my nonsense about, I'm not a co op student. Um, I'm not, uh, I don't know anything about digital equipment. I'm not looking forward to going to Massachusetts in the dead of winter. When he told me just real clearly, go and take the interview. And if you get it, you're going to Massachusetts. That had more future value to me because it was life-changing. So if I had gotten a scholarship, which would have been great knowing my financial and my family's financial situation, being one of nine children, that would have been great short-term value. But that advice and that pushing me to go and, do, and take on this life-changing assignment had more value than a scholarship would have. Then, and then seeing the standard that Kweister Craig, Danny Pogue, and the other professors set for us, that had more value than a scholarship would have because it opened up a future that I hadn't dreamed about. And then I got that replicated when I got to digital equipment. So that when I started looking at life and my journey through that lens, then that was what said and then I looked at these things happen that you really didn't plan. You always plan to do well from an accomplishment standpoint. What did I just do you can You can see me, but I can't see you right now anyway what that did for me, Jerome, was get me, what that did was, was say to me that it made sense for me to pay back the debt of gratitude that I had for those folks who had shaped me, put their hands on me, guided me, and that while I would have loved to have gotten a scholarship, the advice, the counsel, the guidance actually had more value. Touch some of these students, but if I could to take some of that burden off while also giving them some of that same guidance, then over time, much more would come back to the university because hopefully they then would go and be successful and multiply the gifts that they had been blessed with they would bless some others. And that's been my motivation. I feel like that's the ultimate return on investment,
0: right? I mean, as a business person, that's what you're looking for is to put a dollar
1: here and get multiple dollars back. And so- Absolutely. And sometimes it's the dollars, but sometimes it's those other things that are beyond the dollars that will ultimately generate even more dollars. And for me, it was all about If you pay it forward and invest in the right things and the right people, there's no doubt in my mind, it'll get multiplied. Beautiful. So you make the sacrifice, you make the gift,
0: and it's not just one. You don't just write it all in one big check. You do it over the course of years. Was there ever a point you're like, all right, enough is enough. Like, let's cut it out. Or was there always just some special appeal and it's like, man... How can we not do this?
1: Well, I didn't say yes to everything uh, because I couldn't. And and I, as I said to you earlier, I never viewed myself as a philanthropist and still don't. I think the best way to describe me is that I saw a need in an area that I wanted to contribute to. And I tried to do what I could to contribute to that need. And and to further answer your question, when I get to a point that i don't think i can do that anymore i'll stop i don't know that i'll get to that point uh, because i believe that probably every year you can do something but i do know that i'm closer to the end of being able to do what i have done because my income sources going forward are less than they've been up to this point got it
0: and so you know we've been going for a while the final question is what's the
1: one thing you would like for listeners to take away from our conversation? I would say a couple of things. Tough assignments and hard work build character and they build resiliency and don't shy away from them because you learn more from tough assignments than you ever learn from an easy one, number one. And then be prepared to give back in either equal measure or greater measure than what's been given to you over the course of your lifetime. Uh, because without those folks generously giving to me, I couldn't have gotten to where I was fortunate enough to get to the things I was fortunate enough to accomplish. So it just seems fair and and, and equitable to pay back and to pay forward. And um, I don't know that you can ever uh, match what's been done for you, but you ought to try. Oh, that's amazing. That's amazing.
0: And I still say here on the other end of the computer, Hoping one day
1: to unseat you as the biggest alumni giver to the university. And and Jerome, nothing would make me happier. It's a title that I never sought, and I would love to have it broken. Guys, I got tremendous value
0: from this episode, and I'm sure you have too. So, I want you to just lock in and figure out how you can do something. As you just said, you can do something every year and figure out what you're super passionate about and figure out a way to meet that need out of your abundance until the next time your dreams should be real. Thank you for joining the tribe today. We would love to hear from you. Please don't forget to rate like, and share perhaps someone, you know, could benefit from what we've discussed until the next time. Remember that your dreams should be real.